you guys ever said something or done something that as soon as you did it, as soon as you said it, you're like, why in the world did I say that thing? Like, what was I thinking? Uh, this is not the kind of person I want to, to be. Uh, this is not who I am. I think most of my fights with my wife are in these instances where I say something or do something. And as I'm saying it, I'm like, oh, no. What are you doing right now? Um, and I get called out for it, and rightly, and I'll say something, and, and then, like, why did I say that? Where did that come from? Uh, I found myself in this past season kind of complaining constantly about a friend, and if I could take a step back and say, what are the underlying motives behind those complaints? Um, I think I can actually do some real work and some real growth. Are my complaints based on pride, me thinking I'm better than that person, I'm superior morally, or whatever that might be? Um, am I constantly complaining because of my own arrogance? Or is um, my complaint mainly based out of envy? Am I complaining because I resent that person's success and I want to tear them down around other people? So is that an issue of envy? Or perhaps it's an issue of wrath where I have this harbored resentment and anger towards something maybe that friend did to me. Maybe it's a combination of all three, but I think a lot of us rarely take the time to examine our underlying motives for what we say and what we do. We kind of just go about our lives responding and reacting and doing whatever we want without really examining what's going on underneath. And these are the kind of questions that a man named Evagrius Ponticus uh, pursued. Now that's an awesome name, right? Evagrius Ponticus. Sounds like a Harry Potter character, a Lord of the Rings character. But uh, Evagrius Ponticus was actually uh, a fourth century theologian. And he started his career in Constantinople. And why that's important, Constantinople at the time was the capital of the Roman Empire. But it also was the epicenter of Christianity. So it was kind of like the Manhattan of its day. It was the place to be. And so Evagrius started his career in Constantinople. And he was kind of up and coming. He was he's working his way through the ranks. And everybody loved this guy. They kept telling him how great he was. He's a great thinker, a great speaker, a great writer. He was climbing through the ranks and... Everyone told him, man, you're so great at these various things, and he believed it all. And his pride and ego began to swell. He began to be arrogant. Now, eventually that that came to a head, and he was tempted by uh, an an affair with a married woman in the city. And when that came to a head, we realized kind of how far his ego had taken him. He packed up his bags, and he ran out of town. There's a passage in the New Testament, Thessalonians, where Paul says, uh, that he wants us to flee all appearances of evil. And Evagrius took that literally. So he packed up his bags, he left his career, his popularity, his momentum, and he completely abandoned that, and he fled to Jerusalem. And so he spent some time in Jerusalem, he began to network and, and build community with the people there. And then he found that his ego began to swell and swell again. And so he left Jerusalem and he went down to Africa uh, in the desert to hang out with some monks. And what Evagrius found out that I think we find out often in our lives, and as we enter into more mature adulthood, we begin to realize that the problems that we're running away from actually exist within us. The problems that we're running away from are ourselves. And he realized that his pride followed him wherever he went. And so Evagrius spent a lot of time in the desert. He eventually became known as a desert father. Now, if you don't know what that is, Google it. Uh, the desert fathers were awesome. They're also kind of weird. Uh, but a, a good maybe picture image of the Desert Fathers is Obi-Wan Kenobi in A New Hope. He's hiding in the desert in a cave. He's kind of a weird old man. But the young guy comes around seeking knowledge. And, 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 and Obi-Wan, the, the Desert Fathers, you've got to mix it all together. It's all the same thing. These guys, 
fled society to preserve the purity of their faith and to seek out God. They became hermits, but people from all over came to seek out their wisdom. So uh, Evagrius Ponticus became a desert father. People came and, and sought out his wisdom. But Evagrius began to work on a comprehensive list of the great temptations. He wanted to understand the human heart in order to help people grow and diagnose kind of where they're coming from, why they're doing what they're doing. And so he created this, this comprehensive list of the great temptations. And that's what we know today as the seven deadly sins. So the seven deadly sins are pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. And Evagrius had this idea, he he got it from Jesus, he had this idea that the things that we say, the things that we do, all of our external behaviors are driven from internal sin. So the external sins are just really just the symptoms, but the source of our sin, the source of our actions and our brokenness comes from within in our hearts. And this is a sentiment that's echoed in Scripture. Solomon says it in Proverbs 4, he says, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Out of your heart, everything comes. Jesus says this repeatedly. Like this is a theme in Jesus' teachings constantly, that our outward behavior is driven by our inner beliefs and our inner sin. And in one of Jesus' most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, this is a theme that he hits over and over and over again. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and one of the first things that he says after the Beatitudes, he says this statement that's really provocative and really hard-hitting to the crowd. He says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the crowd hearing that would have been like, what in the world is this guy talking about? I thought this guy had an easier way. Now, if, if we were to hear Jesus say that to us today, it would sound something like, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be holier than the Pope. That's how it would have struck the crowd. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, because according, according to appearances and looking at the appearances of these guys' lives, the Pharisees and the scribes had it all together. They followed all the rules correctly. They dressed appropriately. They did all the stuff. They knew the law. They memorized the Bible. They studied the word. They prayed all the time. They gave to the poor. They did all these things. And when you look at their lives, you're like, these guys have it, their lives put together. They're doing it right. And Jesus is telling me that we have to exceed their righteousness. We have to do better than that. This is impossible. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. He says, no, look a little bit closer at the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes. Because while everything they do looks good, in actuality, they're not. They're, they're, they're not actually good human beings. They're legalistic. They're constantly trying to hack away at the symptoms of sin, but they never deal with the heart. And on the inside, they're broken, and they're hurting just like you. Earlier this week, I called a plumber uh, after two years of a plumbing problem. Any other guys relate to that? <laughs> you have a problem, like, I'm, the, I'm not calling the plumber, no way. So the sink in our bathroom didn't drain super fast. And slowly but surely over the course of two years, it got slower and slower and slower until it just stopped. Now over the course of the two, two years, I hacked away at everything I knew to do. I went to the store and got every variation of liquid plumber and Drano and poured it down the pipe. Did the baking soda and vinegar thing. I got the snake, and the snakes, I cranked them down, got different size snakes. I did it forever. Uh, I took the pipes apart and cleaned them out and all this stuff. And it worked a little bit. Like it, 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 it brought temporary relief to the problem at times. But eventually we got to a part, uh, uh, situation two weeks ago where it just altogether stopped draining. 
So I finally called the plumber. He came over, and he did all the stuff, too. I was like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. He's going through the same stuff I'm going through. Uh, but eventually, he said, look, the problem isn't with the sink. The problem is with the pipes underneath the house. And so he went underneath, and he, he did some work, and he took a picture. And he's like, look at this. These pipes are the originals from the house. So they're over 100 years old. They're corrugated still. I don't know what that means. Um, but they're super clogged up. And it's like inevitable over time, these things are going to clog up so much where no, no water can get through. And there's nothing you can do to the sink that's going to make this thing work. We have to replace the entire pipe system underneath to get it to work. And he spent half a day, he did that, and now it works fine. And here's the deal. I could have done all the things I knew how to do, which is very limited, and I did. And I hacked away, and it got temporary relief, but it kept getting worse and worse and worse until it finally just stopped working. That is what legalism is. Legalism is, man, I got a problem that keeps kind of popping up, and I can hack away and do all I can to try to mitigate that behavior, to try to stop that behavior, to try to shame myself or get myself out of it, to try to life hack, life hack my way into moral superiority, but eventually it doesn't work because we're dealing with, with the symptoms, not with the source. The symptoms are what we do out here, but the source is the heart, and if we don't work on the heart, we're not going to get uh, to this full and flowing life. We constantly hack our way. We work on the sink, but not the pipes, and that's what Jesus says about the Pharisees and the scribes, that these guys are working on the symptoms, but never deal with the heart, and it doesn't work. Eventually, everything's just going to break down. What you need is a new heart. And that's what he gets to here in the Sermon on the Mount. Legalism seeks to restrain the heart, not transform it. It seeks to restrain the heart, not transform it. Listen to how Jesus unpacks this in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to kind of spitball through a few chapters here. So after he makes that statement, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, he starts to kind of unpack it a little bit. And he starts off and says, you've heard it say, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone that has lust in their hearts has already committed adultery. So here's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, You guys are looking at the law and saying, as long as I don't literally have an affair with someone else, I'm okay. But Jesus says, that's just working at the symptom. That's just one outlying symptom. The real root issue, the real source problem is lust. And if you have lust in your heart, even if you don't technically have an affair, this lust is going to play out in so many destructive ways in your life. It's going to consume you. You're going to begin to view other people as objects for your pleasure and minimize them and and downgrade them uh, and and pull them away from the image of God that they're made in. So while adultery may be a symptom of lust, lust is the issue. So you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I tell you, deal with lust. He goes on and says, you've heard it said do not commit murder, but I tell you that anyone that harbors anger in their heart has committed murder already. As we're saying, you may not literally kill somebody, but if you don't, and that's the symptom, right? That's the, that's the outward expression. But if you don't deal with the source issue, which is wrath, it's going to play out in so many ways. You're going to murder people with your words. You're going to murder relationship after relationship after relationship. Wrath is the heart issue. Murder is just the outward expression. So you've heard it say do this, but I tell you, deal with the heart. So he, 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 at the beginning of this, this section, he starts dealing with a few sins, but then he moves on to legalism and law, and he says, you've heard it said that if you get the right certificate from Moses, you can get a divorce, but I tell you, unless, someone, unless your spouse uh, is unfaithful to you, don't get a divorce. So in this system that Jesus was addressing, he's like, you guys have found legalistic ways to, to justify divorce, but I'm trying to tell you, get to the heart of the issue of the relationship and what commitment's about. Don't just technically get off on a, on a loophole that you guys have created, by the way. Look at the heart of marriage and relationship. You've heard it said that when you make oaths, you make oaths in this certain way. So he moves on from divorce to, to oaths. 
But I tell you, let your word matter. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So he says, you've heard it said, this is how you make oaths. This is how you can technically break oaths. But I'm telling you, just let your word matter. Don't worry. You, you keep doing and creating rules to address the symptoms, but you're ignoring the issue of the heart. You keep looking for ways to cheat the system, to game the system, to be technically right, but still inwardly wrong. Let your words matter. Be a person of integrity and honesty. You've heard it said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you to turn the other cheek. You guys have found ways in the law to justify revenge. You want to know how far you can take it and get revenge and still be technically right and still be okay under the eyes of God. And Jesus says, I want you to look beyond the law and beyond the technicality, and I want you to turn the other cheek and pursue forgiveness. Forget the letter of the law. Look at the heart of the law. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I tell you to love your enemies. And here's the interesting part about that part of, of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Like God never said hate your enemies. God just said love your neighbor. And they said, well, who's my neighbor? I want to so narrowly define who my neighbor is so I can justify who I hate. I'm trying to legalize hate by, 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 by approaching the law in this way. And Jesus says, you guys are completely missing the heart of the law. You're trying to so narrowly define what you have to do to get in or to be okay or to look good or to avoid punishment that you're completely missing the heart of God. So you're writing in this narrow definition of who your neighbor is and what love even looks like. This is legalism. We, we try to hack the law to be uh, okay in the eyes of God and the eyes of our peers. Have you guys ever met someone that's super religious but also super a jerk? Now, I want to say that Christians don't have the corner market on being jerks. Like, there's jerks everywhere. But I think sometimes it's so jarring for us, for someone that proclaims to follow Jesus, whose foundational statements are love God and love neighbor. It's a little bit jarring for us sometimes to see someone who takes that faith so seriously to be such a jerk, to be so hateful and to be so bitter and small. It's, it's rough. And in the religious tradition I grew up in, there's a lot of that. A lot of super religious super jerks. Okay? Um, and what's happening is that they're, they're looking at the law from a technical standpoint. How do I obey the law so I look good, I feel good, I can be morally superior to others. And Baptists, I'm from the Baptist culture, we kind of make up rules that aren't in the Bible, and then we don't do it, and we don't break them, and then we look down on people that broke the rules that we made up. Like, you know, I won't get into the list, but there's a long list there. Um, we do that so much where we, we, we create these laws, as long as, how far is too far is basically the question. How far is too far? And as long as we keep it within those boundaries, we're okay, but we can sin and, and, and break all the rules as long as we're within these, these boundaries. So Jesus addresses sin and says, uh, you've heard it say don't commit adultery, I tell you to work on lust, anger, murder. He then moves on to some laws that, that we've created and, and, and kind of flips them on its head and exposes our hearts. But then he goes a step further here. He takes it up a notch and he starts talking about some things that are actually good things. He says, when you give to the poor, don't give to the poor in order to look awesome in front of other people. Here's the deal. You, you, you will look awesome. People will think you're great, but that's about it. He says, no, when you give to the poor, I want you to give in private. And, and I want it to be so secret that you don't even know what you're doing. And that's kind of weird. He has a statement in the Sermon of the Mount where he says, I, I don't want your, your right hand to know what your left hand is doing or something like that, right? He basically says, I want your generosity to be so maybe sincere, so in secret that, you're not, you're, that your own ego isn't even being puffed up. Uh, you, like, you're not even patting yourself on the back for it. That's kind of the gist, right? Um, don't give to the poor so that everyone else pats you on the back for how awesome you are. In fact, I want you to take it so far that you don't even pat yourself on the back and tell yourself how awesome you are. 
So Jesus takes a good thing given to people in need, and he says, you guys can even do that wrong. <laughs> you guys can even do awesome things in the wrong way. You can do the right things for the wrong reasons, and it's still sin. You can give to the poor, help those in need, and if you do it so that you look awesome, so that you can call in a favor later or whatever, it's still a sinful act. So when you give, give with complete generosity, with no strings attached. He goes on to another section. He says, when you pray, don't pray these super long, elaborate prayers to impress other people with. Like, those prayers are not about you and God. They're just about other people, about your own ego. He says, when you pray, pray in private and pray simply. Pray like this, and he gives us the Lord's Prayer. He goes to another thing. He says, when you fast, meaning when you stop eating for a season to connect with God, don't, like, not shave and not shower and and walk around just moping, and I'm fasting, I'm so hungry, that sandwich looks so good. Like, don't go around telling everybody you're fasting. Because you're doing that just to look super spiritual. When you fast, clean yourself up and keep it private. So Jesus goes into a section here where he like, says all these good things that, are, that we would say are pretty universally good things. Prayer, giving, fasting, right, discipline. He said, but even if you do those things just to look good, you're still blowing it. You're missing the heart of the kingdom. This is what Jonathan Edwards, as uh, an 18th century theologian, this is what he calls common virtue. So common virtue, uh, when, when Jesus says you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, this is what Jonathan Edwards calls common virtue. Now common virtue simply means you're doing the right thing out of fear or pride. You're doing the right thing out of fear or pride, meaning you're doing something that's good. Jesus gave us three examples right there in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's plenty, right? You're doing the right thing out of fear or pride. So you're doing it in order to look good uh, or to even feel superior to other people because they're not doing that. Like, I'm more honest than that person. Like, that's pride. You're comparing yourself to someone else. It's about you feeling good or looking good or feeling superior to the other person. So we do things out of pride or out of fear, fear out of the, the consequences if we don't do the right things, right? Um, so Jonathan Edwards says, common virtue is doing the right things or good things, but out of the motive of fear and pride. Now here's the problem with that. If we're, if we're doing things, the good things, just to look good or to avoid punishment, that's the exact same reasons that we sin. We sin out of a basis and foundation of fear and pride. So when we do good things out of fear and pride, we're still cultivating a heart that's arrogant and afraid and protective and isolated. It's isolated from God, isolated from others, and even isolated from ourselves when we act out of fear. So a heart that acts out of pride or fear is still cultivating this broken heart. Now Jonathan Edwards flips it and says, but true virtue is this. True virtue is to do good things because God is good. Simply, I'm going to be generous simply because God is generous. I'm going to create something beautiful because God has created beauty. So true virtue is doing something simply out of response to the goodness of God and also love for neighbors. So to give with no strings attached, with no desire to look good or to feel good yourself, but just to be generous because God was generous. That's true virtue. Jesus wants us to move from hypocrisy, which is this disconnect, to complete wholeness. Uh, he, he often calls the Pharisees and scribes hypocrites. In fact, he says like this in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And I love this imagery that Jesus gives. He says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you're ornate, you're clean, you're beautiful, but inwardly, you're just a corpse. You're rotting away at the bones. You're like a nice porcelain sink (laughs) that doesn't drain water because the pipes underneath are all gunked up and jacked. (laughs) He calls them hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who is an actor. It's someone who wears a mask, someone who projects something outwardly, but inwardly something different is going on. There's a disconnect. Elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, he says this statement, which is really provocative as well. He says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when I, every time I read this passage, I'm like, I have no idea what he means. Because what it sounds like he means is i got to be as perfect as God. And that sounds impossible. What happens is we get a little tripped up on the word perfect. And I think it's actually a bad translation. When you look at the Greek word for perfect, it's better translated whole or complete, full. And so what Jesus is getting at with this verse is, I don't want your righteousness to be full of hypocrisy. Where you're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, it looks good outwardly, but inwardly you're wasting away. Because eventually that just, it pours out of you. Eventually that brokenness pours out of you and becomes destructive. I don't want that disconnect. I don't want that hypocrisy. What I want is fullness, where your heart is aligning with your actions. And everything you do and say is coming out of the overflow of your heart. Because Jesus says that's what happens anyway. Whatever's going on on the inside eventually is going to find its way out. Uh, he says a bad tree produces bad fruit and a good tree produces good fruit. Um, we can't deal with, we can't produce good fruit if the root of who we are isn't whole in, in Christ. So we need to be whole, we need to be aligned, we need to be good trees. And the question is how, and I'm just going to close with a few ideas of what does this look like to move from common virtue, which is doing good things out of fear and pride towards true virtue. How do we move from hypocrisy and legalism to wholeness and fullness? How do we get to understand that um, all of our behavior and all the things that we say come from within? How do we learn how to analyze that and, and grow? The first thing I would say is just look at the cross. The cross kind of shows us that the game is up, that we've been playing this game for, for years of trying to prove ourselves and earn our way in, and, and God just says, you don't have to do that anymore because it was, you can't do it. The cross just proves you don't need to, you don't have to, and really, you can't. Tim Keller says it like this. I love this quote. He says, only Jesus Christ will deal with all of your fear and your pride. Not your efforts, not your hard work. Why? Because when you see Jesus dying on the cross for you, it tells you two things. First, it gets rid of your pride. Why? Because you must be pretty bad if he had to die for you. But it also gets rid of your fear. Why? Because he must really love you. Because while you were an enemy, he died for you. The cross gets rid of fear and pride and brings us to true virtue. The cross shows us that we can't earn it. We don't have to earn it. He's already done it. The cross brings us to a place of humility. The cross also brings us to a place of security. We don't have to be afraid. Jesus already paid it. It's already secure. Because we have security in the cross, we can come to God in all honesty and say, hey, I messed up, and here's why I think I messed up. Here's what I think is going on. I need you to work in my heart and, 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 and to grow me and to change me. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says that God will give us a new heart. He will give us a restored spirit. Paul says it like this in Corinthians. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So Jesus is about the work of, 
of changing us from the inside, changing our hearts. He's not just looking to hack away at our outward behaviors, but to deal with the source. He's not just looking at the symptoms, but he wants to deal with the source. Each week here at Area 10, we take communion. And communion is a great time to weekly remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed for us. The cross brings us to a place of humility and security. It brings us away from arrogance and pride, and it brings us away from, from fear. The second thing I would say is, look at the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes are actually what Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with. It's this long list of blessed are this because this. And when we look at the seven deadly sins that Evagrius Ponticus uh, created, or kind of, he listed out, um, if you take those seven deadly sins and you line them up with the Beatitudes, there's actually a really cool parallel. And the Beatitudes show us what, what attitudes our hearts should have. Um, so let's just kind of walk through that line by line really quickly. Uh, so blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the poor in spirit just means a person that is hu- humble, uh, spiritually broken. So humility and, and spiritual brokenness and desperation, that's kind of the cure for pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. Now, it goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn. And that's a cure for envy. Now, envy is this kind of a nuanced thing. Envy is when you resent someone else's success, so you want their destruction. Uh, jealousy is, uh, I, I, I'm jealous, of, you know, I'm, je- I'm jealous, I see something someone else has, and I want that thing. When I'm envious, it's not that I want that thing, it's that I want to destroy that person. I want them to not have it. You understand the nuance there? Uh, so envy is resenting someone else's success. And then conversely, if you're still under the envy line, celebrating when they fail. But blessed are those who mourn. Now Paul says in Romans, we should weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So blessed are those who mourn when people uh, suffer. That's a cure for envy, which is rejoicing when people suffer. So it's, it's anti-envy. Now blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a, it's a, counter, it's a cure maybe for gluttony. Now gluttony is just you're kind of stuffing yourself with things that are not actually substantial, fulfilling, or nourishing. You're trying to kind of numb out to the pain, and you're just doing that by gorging on. It could be food, it could be Netflix, it could be whatever, right? Gluttony is just, I'm going to narc out on something to numb out the pain. Um, but Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They'll be filled with the goodness of God. So that's a counterpoint to gluttony. Blessed are the merciful, uh, so when you're merciful to someone, you're, 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 you're willing to forgive them, you're willing to give them stuff, you're willing to be generous, whereas greed, it's a counterpoint to greed, greed is I'm going to hoard things. Um, I'm not going to offer forgiveness. I'm going to stay in control of things and, and hoard it. So it's about control. So blessed are the merciful, it's a counterpoint to greed. Blessed are the pure in heart as a counterpoint to, to lust. It might be self-explanatory, but when you're, when you're pure in heart, you're not viewing other people simply as objects of your pleasure, you're viewing them as objects, uh, as, as not objects, you're viewing them as people made in the image of God. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers is a counterpoint to wrath. Now, wrath is kind of a weird thing because we, we sometimes translate wrath as anger. Uh, and it's not the same thing. Anger, everyone gets angry. Jesus got angry. Uh, we get angry. But the question is, what do you do with your anger? And so uh, a peacemaker is someone who takes that anger and uses it as energy to create resolution that seeks to to withhold harm to other people, but also bring about resolution, whereas wrath just seeks the ultimate destruction of the other person. And blessed are those who endure suffering as a counterpoint to sloth. Another word for sloth is apathy. When we think of sloth, we think of the cute furry animal. That's kind of my spirit animal. I love sloths. They're awesome. We think of people that move slowly or lazy. That's not necessarily the case. 
Sloth really it means apathy, and apathy means no passion, means no suffering. I'm not willing to suffer for anything. That's what sloth means. Is I'm checking out on life because I'm not willing to suffer or endure suffering. But Jesus kind of gives us a counterpoint to sloth and says, blessed are those who are willing to endure suffering for righteousness' sake. So the Beatitudes can kind of serve almost as a mirror to, to check your heart. Is your heart in the right place? And as you're kind of going through situations or relationships or different seasons of your life, you can look at the Beatitudes and say, how do I line up here? Am I living the blessed life? Am I living the blessed life? Look at the Beatitudes. And lastly, I would say, look at yourself. Now next week, uh, as we kind of continue the series, we're going to spend a whole sermon on this idea where Jesus says, take the plank out of your eyes so you can see clearly. So next week, the whole sermon will be kind of committed to this idea of looking at yourself and growing in self-awareness um, through the lens of the gospel, and through the lens of Jesus. But for, for now, I just want to say a few things. Uh, look at yourself. Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. And I start off this morning saying, how many times have you said something or done something, and then you step back and say, why in the world did I say that? Why in the world did I do that? I'm what an idiot. You know, uh, how many times have we done that without actually taking a step back and really saying, no, 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 seriously, why did I say that? Seriously, wh- why did I do that? What's going on there? So the unexamined life is not worth living. What would it look like to begin to examine your life and examine the things that you say, the things that you think, the things that you do, and really start to challenge what's going on underneath that's causing this behavior or this this attitude? Um, Some practical ways to do that would be at the end of a day uh, to journal just throughout the day and say, where did I I win? Uh, Where did I do? Where, Where did I behave in a way that I wanted to behave that honored God, that honored my own integrity, my own character, my own reputation? Now, but then also say, where did I struggle today? Where, where did I really blow it with a friendship or a coworker or a kid or a spouse? And as we kind of examine some of those areas, just say, what was going on there? Why did I say that? Why did I act that way? So really stop and say, no, why? <laughs> why did I do that? Slow down and do it. Examine your life. And you might be able to, if you don't like journaling, maybe it's just getting coffee or a drink with your friends. And kind of unpacking a story and say, hey, push back here. What's going on? Um, what do you guys see in this? So look at yourself. Also realize that everything's going to be a mix. I mentioned earlier common virtue versus true virtue. But realize that everything we do, there's a blend somewhere in there. Like there's still a piece of us that wants to look good, right? It's hard to kind of get completely away from fear and pride. So have grace on yourself. But just be aware of the motivations and motivators there. Um, so next, next week we're going to spend the entire time talking about the plank being pulled out of your eye. But I want to kind of close with this. Uh, we're in a season of life right now. I mean, my wife and I, we have four small children, six, four, two, zero. I think it's getting six, five, three, one. Anyway, anyway, we have a lot of kids, and they're young. And so the house sometimes is just pure chaos and pure noise. And a thousand times a day, someone hits someone, someone bites someone, someone throws something somewhere, someone yells. There's, it's just constant chaos, right? And there's this tension in us when we get tired to just kind of start playing whack-a-mole. No, not literally. Like physically, sometimes that, but just saying, stop, 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 stop. We're just kind of yelling at our kids to stop. And the voice gets louder. It doesn't work, right? That rarely works. We just yell loud enough to where they stop. Um, so it feels like whack-a-mole. Where we're just constantly yelling and being frustrated sometimes it's when we have to kind of break down. 
But we found that when we take the time to pull one aside and just sit with them and ask them, what's going on? Why, why did you throw the hammer at the sister? You know, what's going on there? If we just take some time and ask a few questions and have some compassion and empathy, it goes a long way. We start to see breakthroughs. That when we're actually, when we're kinder to our kids, it kind of works. It's kind of weird, right? Uh, so the question I kind of close with is, what if we talk to ourselves like that? What, what if when we began to do some, some self-introspection and say, why did I do that? What if we talked to ourselves like we were talking, like we'd want to talk to one of our kids or to one of our friends? Maybe our best friend's going through a really hard season and they're beating themselves up. Like, how would we want to respond to them? How would we want to speak to them? How would we want to speak to, to ourselves as if we were responsible for our own care, for self-care? What would it look like to speak to ourselves with empathy and compassion, curiosity, rather than just shame and guilt and anger and you, you're just constantly beating yourself up? What would it look like if we talked to ourselves like we would want to talk to a child? And what if we believed also that God was for us? What if we believed that God was also compassionate and patient and curious and loving and that God wanted us to to have a full life that wasn't just good on the outside but broken on the inside but a life of fullness and wholeness and that he wants to work on restoring our hearts. What if we believed that and pursued that? I think God wants us to, to, to begin to look inside to see what's affecting the things that are going and taking place outside of us. Uh, he wants us to find fullness. And Jesus says, come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And this is kind of the path for that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the wisdom of Jesus and how he just kind of line by line exposes how often we keep the rules for the wrong reasons but never really pursue uh, true virtue. We thank you for Jesus who has shown uh, that he is for us, that he loves us by coming and and dying on the cross. And I pray this morning we would rest in that and trust in that and and celebrate that. In Christ's name, amen.